0: Father, thank You for Your goodness. We just, now as a community, we testify to who You are, the things that make You so good, and we just, we stand under that. We don't always have a sense, we don't, we live in a broken world, we don't always have a sense of that goodness, but we know what's true, and this morning we affirm it, and we want to bask in that. Thank You, not only for who You are, but for the good things that You do, and have blessed us with this week. We pray in the name of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for doing that with me. Bless you. Now it feels like winter, right? Looks like winter, feels like winter. Seems like we've had kind of a mild winter. Um, So good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good Good to see you. Um, Just a couple a couple things, just one thing in relation to last week. Last week, we spent some time together as a family in here, and then I trust individually you had time to. We did an end of the year, beginning of the year kind of an evaluation, examine, looking into our lives, and we ended up running out of this in the second service. So, if you were here first service, that wasn't an issue, the, the extra stuff that I had. But if you weren't here last week, And this is an exercise I try to do not just every year, but I actually work through, try, I don't always get it done, but like every three months to kind of come back and ask myself some questions to see where, how I'm doing spiritually. But if you weren't here and want to grab one of these or the extra set of questions, they're all in the back um, for you to have. And this morning we're going to be, I've got kind of an extensive bulletin insert, and if you, it's kind of an important topic. It is an important topic. And if you want to take notes, I know sometimes a couple just get one bulletin, but this morning I laid out some extra of these in the rows. So if you're wanting to take notes, um, there's actually another question on the back that I want everybody to think about this morning. So if you want to take notes, you can um, you can pull that out. But here we are in a new year, and... Um, So I wanted to start the year by talking about the mission of God. I've been reading through Jonah and studying it. I'm hoping, I mean, at some point in the relatively near future, I want to look into that book. But you can't read Jonah and not have the mission of God be forefront in your mind because that's really what the book is all about. So just kind of a quick reminder from last year, and this is important. You know, we've talked a lot about the story of God Um, and how important that is. And if you remember, his story happens in three parts, and I know it's really easy because I've got it up there, but the three parts are, what's the first part? God creates everything exactly as He intends it to be. The man and woman reject relationship and everything collapses, and so we then have corruption. Things are not the way God intended them to be. Jesus enters into the world as the Savior to bring redemption, and then with His death and His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, He has begun His mission, which is what? Restoration, to make all things new again. And right now, we live in this time when that restoration is partial. Um, We don't experience it fully. We can't bring it fully, but He's at work using us to be at work, to to be restorers, And when Jesus returns, then, I was just talking to somebody this week, how much we long to be free from sin. When He finally returns, that restoration will be complete. Um, So God is on a mission, if you remember, to restore all things back to Himself. And that in and through Jesus, God longs to, and we're going to come to this in February, I'm going to get more into this deeply, but God longs to do two things, to reconcile to Himself all things. We talked about this last year in Colossians 1.20 but to also reconcile to Himself all people in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And that's why our mission here, to be on mission with Him, is we are seeking to restore all things to God, one person, one place at a time. Um, And this, obviously, the centerpiece of that mission is this one. It's all important, but that's the centerpiece of His mission. Um, And so, I just want to remind you that God's mission started way back here, mission in Genesis chapter 3. That was when God began this mission to bring about this restoration that He will do. And that is why we'll, these things will make more sense in the year, next year or so, but a plumb line to me, a really an important thing that I think is important to the way we think about being on mission with God is this, that God is on a mission and His mission has a church. It's not that God has a church and He gave His church a mission. It's that God has been on a mission since Genesis 3. And His mission now has a church. And I want to tell you, um, God was relentless in His pursuit of that mission. 2 Peter 3.9 says that He does not want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but He wants everyone to come to repentance. And that's why Jesus said in John 5.17 that He said, my Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So God's on a mission, and He's always at work. Again, restoring all things back to Himself, one person, one place at a time. And I want to tell you something that I think is really important, that behind this passion to bring lost people back to Himself, I want to focus on that one if you don't mind, that aspect of His mission. There resides in God this strong desire to do new things. And frequently, in accomplishing His mission, in accomplishing that mission, frequently God must do new things. And I just want to make a brief case for new things, if I may, Um, just some things I've pulled together from the Scripture. Nine times in the Bible, God talks about a new song, people desiring to give Him a new song or His desire to have a new song. and it just was an Old Testament. At the culmination of human history and into eternity, in Revelation 5 and 14, we learned that we will continue to actually write and sing new songs to Him. To reach the world, in John 31, we're told that God was on a mission that He would eventually make a new covenant or a new agreement. And then in Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus, at that last supper He had, He took that cup and He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So God was at work making a new covenant. Anybody who enters into relationship with him through Jesus gets new life. Um, Romans 6, 4 says that, that we too may live new life. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. God's end game which if we went back to that mission, the creation, corruption, restoration, His endgame is a new creation, a new heaven and earth. He talked about it in Isaiah, and then in Revelation 21, finally when He returns, He, he will raise all of us who believe in Him from the dead, and He will create a new heaven and new earth, Revelation one tells us. And in Revelation 21.5, the one who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things, What? all things new, all things new. Jesus was all about new, we'll see that in a minute, but in John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. they had already been commanded to love one another, but he now says, I'm giving you a new commandment, I want you to do it the way you've seen me do it, because you've watched God in flesh enacting love, and I want you to to do it the way I did it. And one of my favorite passages, um, related to new things. Even though the Word isn't there, the concept is. And in Habakkuk 3.2, Habakkuk cried out. I just love his cry. He said, Lord, I've heard of Your fame, and I stand in awe of Your deeds, Lord. Would You please repeat them in our day? In our time, would You make them known? And God, and I think anticipating that that request would come back in chapter 1 had said this, look at the nations and watch and I want you to be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God wants to continue in His mission to reach all nations which, you know, He's building a house of prayer for all nations and that, that mission is far from reached, 2,000 unreached ethnic or national groups. Um, that He will do things that would utterly amaze us to reach those nations. And last week when we were doing the examine, we had this scripture that I like, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see I am doing a, what? A new thing. And then His question that's so important, now it springs up, do you not perceive it? Do you perceive the new thing that I'm wanting to do? In you as an individual, in your community, meaning this community, the family of God, in the community where you reside. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams and the wasteland. So, in accomplishing his mission, God frequently has to do new things. Uh, I have a lot of verses I love. I love this one 2 Samuel 14 14. I say that a lot. Skylar used to tease me. Uh, Probably still does, but still would. God does not just sweep life away. He does not just sweep life away. Instead, He devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from Him. Isn't that cool? When you're separated from God, either if you're not in relationship because of your sin, or if you've been walking with Him and you've drifted away, that God is devising ways continually, devising ways to bring us back to Him. To reach an unreached nation, God frequently must do new and unique things. We've seen that in human history. To reach unreached people groups, God frequently has to do new and unique things. To reach a community or a city or a nation, God frequently has to do new and unique things. To reach a new generation, God has to do new and unique things. To reach a family. I just was talking a couple weeks with somebody who's seeking God powerfully, and they're a little concerned because none of their family believes, but, and I was kind of telling them to reach a family, to reach your family, it may be, you may be the entry point. It may be that you're the new and unique thing God wants to do to reach that family. To reach an individual, God must do new and unique things. To reach me, God had to do new and unique things. But here's the deal about new things. To us, new things look different. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? If it's new, it looks different, right? They look different, and they look difficult. So, from our perspective, when God starts doing a new thing, we're like, whoa, that's different, and hmm, that to be a part of that looks difficult. And so, the next two weeks, I want to talk about these two things how new things look different, and how they look difficult. This week, I want to talk about the first, how they look different. And I think the danger of missing when God is doing a new thing, because it does look different. That's the danger. You know, we talked about woo. The danger of woo is you don't recognize it. The danger of when God does something new, that it can be so different that if we're not careful and if we're not perceptive, that we can actually miss the thing that He's doing. So, to speak of this, I want to focus on Matthew's story, a story that is recorded in his Good News of Jesus. It's found in chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. If you want to follow on the screen, that's fine. But um, I love this story. It's one of Jesus' most famous encounters and sayings, so it's one I want to focus on this morning. And we're going to kind of be in and out of this, so I won't have you stand for this to read it, just if you'd follow with me. So as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. In Mark's account, I love it because Mark says many people like this followed him. Many people like this followed him. Jesus was frequently surrounded by the riffraff, the undesirables, and ragamuffins, of which one of those was I. And then some people show up. First, uh, the bad guys. The bad guys. The religious leaders of the day, they feel they need to comment on this about Jesus' life. And so when the Pharisees saw this, they asked His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Luke says they complained. They were complaining. This wasn't a legitimate question. It was a, a, I mean, it was a question, but it was a complaint. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, I'm not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. Uh, I think the NLT does a really good job with this. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. They do a good job with that. Okay, so that's his response. That's their question. That's his response to them. Now the good guys step in with their question. Followers of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, they decide, well, since they asked a question, we'll follow suit with the question we've been wondering and have been wanting to ask of Jesus. So they, John's disciples came and they asked Him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, they don't fast at all? What's up with that? Um, Luke adds, not just fasting, but yours go on eating and drinking. You know, while we're fasting, you guys are parting is, kind of is kind of the idea. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And I don't want to get into that answer. That's, that's a, a whole discussion, I think, just that. But the thing I really want to point out is this. Um, that for Jesus and for God to reach a new world, it meant Him doing new things. It necessitated new things. And this meant that the way He was doing things was different than they had been done before. And that, by doing things different, what that brought was confusion and discomfort and even opposition. And I want you to realize that this confusion, discomfort, and opposition, as I was thinking about this this week, it was not only those who were in strong opposition to him, the religious leaders, but it was also this, this confusion, discomfort, even opposition came from those who were aligned with him, right? Not just those who were against him. So, knowing that, Jesus responded, Luke tells us, with a parable. With a parable. And here's what it is, no one sews a patch on unshrunken cloth, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Uh, That kind of makes sense, I hope that makes sense. People probably don't do patches as much now as they used to, well, except nowadays patches like this are cool, right? This is the cool thing to do, is to have patches, you buy them with patches, right? There are probably people that do this, but when I was a child, I want to tell you, wearing clothes or jeans with patches was a cause of great shame and ridicule, right? If you had patched clothes, you were uncool. My best friend, his mother, patched his clothes all the time. Even when he outgrew his pants, she would sew new cloth on the bottom of his jeans. I mean, talk about how uncool is that? He always walked around in a constant sense of shame um, and hated how much his mother would patch his clothes. Back then, if you get a tear, you patch it to fix it, not to look good. Um, but I think you kind of, you get the principle what he's saying. If you take a piece of cloth of like some clothing you've worn, maybe it's all cotton, and you've washed it and dried it several times and it shrunk, and then if it gets a hole and you put a patch on it of new cotton that hasn't shrunk yet, and then you wash and dry it, the rest of the shirt will stay it is, but that patch will pull off, does that make sense? It's pr- that's kind of a no-brainer, right? That's kind of a no-brainer, so I wish I had grown up in your generation, by the way, so I could look cool with this kind of stuff, but look, I'm still just in old-fashioned uncool genes, so. But then he says this, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, because what's important to him and to anybody is that both are preserved, Right? And I don't know how much you know about wineskins. I think we know a lot more about patches on jeans. So let me tell you a little bit about wineskins. In ancient Israel, you know, wines made from grapes, I think we know that, but they would press them and it would create this stuff called must. I don't know what must is, but, um, and it would sit in the, in the wine press for several days while it fermented because there was some pretty major like fermentation going on in the first few days. And after those first few days, then they would put it in vats, or in, they would take it out of the vats, and they would put it in jars and seal it up, where it would continue to ferment, um, and it wouldn't pop the lids off, I guess. But if you had to transport that wine after that initial few days of fermentation, you'd have to put it in a wineskin to transport it. You can see, uh, here's a picture of some dude. He looks European to me. He doesn't look like a, almost looks like Daniel Boone. But anyways, um, now that I think about it, But you see a guy carrying, I mean, that's a wineskin on his back. And they were made from lamb, from sheep skins, lamb skins, and they would tie off the holes where the legs were and any other holes that were on there, and then they would fill it with wine, um, with that new wine. And it would continue to ferment even inside the wineskin and continue to expand. And so old wineskins, because of their age, they were no longer pliable and able to expand and if they were old enough, were actually brittle. And so the activity of that new wine fermenting in there, creating those gases, it would stretch and stress and perhaps even break an old wineskin because they were unable to, to yield to that. And in which case, the wineskin and the wine were both lost. And that's not good, right, to lose both. So taking fresh wine while it's still fermenting and placing it in an old wineskin would ultimately destroy both. So, it's pretty obvious, right? You don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Look at, I'm, I've got math mark beside it, beside the Matthew text. And I, I just, you know, anytime you're studying a text, it's always really good to go through and ask the question, like, what words are repeated? Because they're, they're usually really important. What, do you see any words that repeat in here? We won't spend too much time on this, but any words that you see repeated? There's two that are pretty obvious, huh, new and therefore old. Any other things that stand out? Do it. Yeah, garment. What else? Patch, okay. Yeah, wineskin. And if you don't mind, I just want to focus on the old, and two, uh, the old and new. Mark actually, the way he writes it, he has more of those in it. Um, so, that, those are very obviously important words. Old and new, that's the point of this whole story is old and new. And which word occurs the most? Old or new? Yeah, new occurs the most. Um, and why? Because the point is about the new. The point's not really about the old. The point is that God will do and wants to do new things to reach people that are estranged from Him. So the whole point of this is this concept of him wanting to do new things. Now, if you, I wanna say some things about this, some concepts that I think are really important that I get from this story. And on the back of the sheet, there's like some sentences and you can fill in the blank words. I don't know if you like fill in the blanks, but I think these concepts are really important. And to me, they're gonna be really important. They are important in this body and I think will continue to be important as we move forward. So the first one would be this, that when God does a new thing, it oftentimes requires a new container. When God does a new thing, it oftentimes requires a new container. He does not pour new wine into old containers because more often than not, the new thing He wants to do doesn't mix well with the old container. Old containers frequently are incapable of handling the pressure that's created by the new thing that God wants to do. And I think we also need to remember that the value... Is the value in the wine or the wineskin? What's the most valuable thing? It's in the wine, right? The value is in the wine. It is in the wine. It's not in the wineskin. The wine is the thing of greater value. And so, therefore, the priority is... Is it the wine or the wineskin? It's the wine. It's the new thing. The priority is the new thing, not the container, not the container. Um, But I think, don't we all, it is human nature that we tend to put the value, okay, when I'm talking about a new thing and a new container, you know what I'm saying, like God's wanting to do new work and to do that means we have to do new structures or new methods or new uh, models to be at work with Him. Does that make sense? Isn't it really easy for all of us instead of we can lose focus on the wine or the thing that's of value and we can put our focus on the container? Isn't that really easy to do? Isn't it easy to focus on the container? Why do you think we're so guilty, all of us, we all struggle with this, that when God's wanting to do a new thing and it requires a new container, why do you think we so badly want to hold on to the old container even though He wants to do a new thing? Can you give me some reasons? Why do you think we so badly... Overvalue the container or want to hold on to it? What do you think? Give me some reasons. It's comfortable. it's comfortable, yes. The old container, we're used to carrying it on our back. It's kind of, it adapts to our back. It fits really well, so it's comfortable. What else? What's that? Yeah, the unknown. To let this thing go that we know this container and to take on a new container, you know, like, what's that going to look like? What's it going to feel like? What's going to happen with that? What are we going to lose? What are we going to gain? There's a lot of an unknown, and the unknown brings fear. Wow, that's cool. I had two things I was thinking, and it was, it was uncomfortable in the unknown and the fear of it. Any other ones? What's that? Say that again. A little louder. Value. value. Yeah, because we put the value on that one. Okay. Okay. So, the priority is on the new thing, not the container. But I think it's so easy for us to put the priority on the container. And so, just this is a reminder, not just for you, it's a reminder for me that the wine is the what? It is the mission of God. It's his mission to take the good news to all people, it's the mission to restore all things to himself. That's the wine, and the mission, the good news, the gospel, that is non negotiable, right? That is non-negotiable. We will never give up on the mission of God. We will never give up on the Word of God because those things are non-negotiable. But the wineskin, the how, the method, the model to deliver that mission, even the mindset that it takes, that's another, if you were at another word last night, I was thinking, I should have thrown mindset on there. But the method, the model, the mindset, that's up for grabs, right? Because when God wants to do a new thing to attain His mission, That means we've got to get a new wineskin, and that means those things are up for grabs. And that's where the Pharisees got it all wrong. If I went back to verses 11 and 14, not just the Pharisees, but I think even John's disciples. Look at 11. What were the Pharisees most interested in? What was highest on their priority list? What would you say? Looking at what they say. their reputation what Rick yeah how they look towards others huh yeah the rules and I think keeping themselves pure from those sinful outsiders right staying away from those people obeying the rules all of that how about John's disciples what was it what was their focus what what were they most interested in what's that one more The food, yeah the food stuff. I think keeping expected religious tradition, right? That's what they were interested in. And if you read after this, you'd find the the Pharisees are very interested also in keeping expected religious tradition. That comes up again and again and again. And this is understandable. Because this thing Jesus doing, on him, on being on mission, the thing He was doing and the way He was doing it was new, and new always means, what's that first D word? It always means different. New always means different. So it's understandable. Even His followers didn't totally get it. In the book of Acts, they were struggling with this container, with letting go of the container of the old way of doing things. And we won't go into the details with that. But I want you to look specifically, if we were to look at the Pharisees, something about them in verse 13. Um, that what I think they really lost sight, that Jesus is pointing out to them, the thing they lost sight of the most, where He says this, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This really stood out to me because as I've been reading Job and his unwillingness to go on mission with God, In the book of Job, it's all about the mercy of God and His desire to reach lost people. And they should have known better. So rather than embrace what God was doing, the new thing, rather than embrace the people that He was reaching, they shut Him out, they shut Jesus out, and they excluded those they were reaching because they lacked perhaps the most important thing. I think I heard it this morning, we talked about the goodness of God, His mercy, towards those who don't know Him, or to those who do but have fallen away from Him, His mercy. Jesus comes back to this theme in Matthew 23, where He says, You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, there's the word again, mercy and faithfulness. They had lost sight of lost people. They had lost sight of God's mission. And so when the new came, when the new came is the expression of God's work in the world and of His mission, sadly, they missed it. And we don't want to make that mistake, right? We don't want to be a people that if God is doing a new thing, we miss it. Don't we want to be a people that perceive what He's doing so we can join Him in what He's doing? So... A few more things on this sheet, just perspectives on this topic of new things. We often forget about this, but do you realize that the old wine was once new wine, and the old wineskin was once new wineskin? That the old wineskin actually at one time was a new container with new wine, do you realize that? It was the new thing, and when that was new, that had disrupted the wineskin before it. So the the old wineskin actually at one point in time was the container for the new that had disrupted the old container. And probably, how do you think people felt about that wineskin at that time? Do you think they liked the new wineskin when it was getting rid of the old wineskin? Well, no. It's kind of like uh, the piano. You know, when the piano was invented for a long time, the only people who could hear a concert with a piano were the very wealthy in Europe, in the old Europe and common people could never hear the piano. When finally the upright was created to make it like able for commoners to hear it, do you know where the one place was where upright pianos were put for commoners to sing around a piano and hear the music? It was in the bars, the pubs. Churches dared not have a piano, they only had organs. When pianos first were introduced into a church as a new container, do you know how most people responded to pianos in a church? They were up in arms because that is only an instrument that you play in a bar or a pub. How dare you bring that into the space where we worship God? Because that's how things are. What is now an old wineskin was once new that replaced another old wineskin. And also this, that I think every new wineskin eventually becomes a what? An old wineskin. So if God does a new thing... and and it needs a new container, eventually that's going to become an old wineskin because he's going to have a new thing that he wants to do. And I I think it's so easy for all of us, including myself, to forget um, that the initial new thing required a new container in the first place. So, to be on mission with God means the occasional interruption of new things. This is just the reality. If we're going to be on mission with God, it means the occasional interruption of new things. And new things mean, oh, there's the word new things mean what? Change. change. And change means? Change means different. Um, humanity, we've always struggled with change. I love these. I've got a lot of examples of these, but I like this one. Western Union, this was their internal memo. You know, they used to do that. What was the thing they did? The, the wire, you know, the type, the what? Telegraph, right. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. Or the head of 20th Century Fox in 1946, his opinion of the television when it was new. Television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will get so, so tired of staring at a plywood box every day, Right? And we sit and stare at it every day, the flat plywood boxes now that hang on our walls, um, right? Because new things, it is so hard to change when new things come. Mark Twain, This to me, this is so funny. When I first read this, I laughed out loud. I was reading to my family the other day. They weren't quite as impressed as I was. But if, here's what he said. If the world ever comes to an end, I want to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, because it will happen there 10 years later. Isn't that great? He had lived for three months in Cincinnati, and he left because the place was so old-fashioned. But the reality is, the reality is, um, isn't that true? I'm just saying of church in general, of church, that things tend to happen here 10 years after they happen somewhere else, or of pastors. Look, I'm still not wearing patches. I'm like 50 years behind the times or something. But, um, but this can be so true of us. What's true of Cincinnati can be true of us. Um, I love these words. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, is from a doxology, a praise to God. But how often do we take this and this gets applied not to God but to church, right? As it was in the beginning, it is now and it ever shall be. Mark Batterson said, most of us will only follow Christ to the point of precedence, the place where we've been before, but no further. We're afraid of doing what we've never done because it's unfamiliar territory. So we leave unclaimed new gifts that God wants to give to us. So let's remember that a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn, okay? A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. So a few more thoughts. I think things we need to be mindful of. That the greatest enemy of tomorrow's success, so the greatest enemy of tomorrow's success is yesterday's success or today's success. I mean, I, I know this of my own self because we are creatures of habit so much, all of us. And even those of us who want to be in the midst of the new thing that God is doing, either in our body or in Emporia to reach the lost, that last thing can become the lo- thing that we love so much that It gets in the way of the new thing that God wants to do. We can all struggle with that. And that's why oftentimes the greatest hindrance of a new move of God, that should be a capital G, a new move of God around you and in your life, the greatest hindrance to the new move He wants to make is frequently the last move of God in my life. That's why our key... R.T. Kendall said, sometimes the greatest opposition to what God wants to do next comes from those who are on the cutting edge of what God did last. Even people who love being on new things, you can so fall in love with the container of the new thing you were in last that you miss the thing that God wants to do next. And that's a really humbling thought because all of us need to be careful of that, all of us. So, in this parable, Jesus is calling us to be flexible." just as new wineskins are flexible to meet the needs of the new wine. I think this means that we need a bias toward the new. Now, give me a minute to, to nuance this. But we need a bias for the new, not for the sake of the new. Who cares about just new for new's sake, right? But we need a bias for new because we have a bias for the mission of God. And we have a bias for lost people, right? And if we have a bias for His mission, we've got to have a bias for the new. Think about it. I want you to think about it. God Himself was in the midst of the Pharisees and John's followers. God Himself was there doing new things, and they were missing it because it was different. And that's really humbling. That's why I agree with National Community Church, who has this statement they say all the time we are more afraid of missing opportunities than making mistakes. I'd rather be afraid of missing the new thing God wants to do, of not missing it, than I'm afraid of making a mistake. So I think we must be constantly asking, where is God at work around us? What are the new things He's wanting to do? And it means we have to have our eyes open um, as we ask that question. And I don't think 12th is a place that's afraid of change. I value that about this church, but I just want to remind us we need to continue to be open to change. Um, this sermon can almost sound like, oh, this is Garen shot across the bow beginning of second year. Now it's really coming this year, right? And that's really not the point of this. That's really not the point because um, I am uninterested in change for change sake, sake, sake. If there is no intentionality in attaining the mission, it, I'm not interested in it. I frankly, frankly am very uninterested in change to be cool I mean, as you can tell, I'm the least cool person that there is. Um, I dislike that when churches feel like they have to become cool. I am uninterested in blowing stuff up. I did enough of that when I was a kid with my brother's chemistry set in our basement. My mother around, you could ask her about that. Um, And I'm also uninterested in getting rid of the old just because it's old. I'm not interested in that. There's value to the old. I want to show you a very profound statement Jesus made in Matthew 13 when he said, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom what kind of treasures? New treasures as well as old. So God doesn't have a bias against the old. He doesn't have a bias against the old. There is value in tradition. There's value in staying rooted to the past. I don't know if you've noticed, we've been doing some things to more tie us to our roots. Um, There's value in the old things as long as it doesn't come at the expense of the new thing that God wants to do. There's value in the old as long as it doesn't come at the expense of the new thing which God is wanting to do. And I'm all for change when God is doing a new thing for His sake, for the sake of His mission. I'm all about moving into the new with great intentionality if that's what it means to join God in the work that He's doing in raiding the kingdom of darkness and setting captives free. If He wants to do a new thing to do that, I'm all in. So I think we need to have a whatever it takes mentality when it comes to reaching the lost. Uh, Craig Rochelle and Life Church says this We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. Isn't that cool? That's their way of saying, we will do anything. We will try any new thing God's doing to reach people who don't know Jesus, who are far from Him, as long as we don't sin. And if something's no longer effectively working, or there's been a change in the target audience, um, anything we do that no longer adequately fills the mission, I think we should not be afraid of changing horses, just like the Pony Express, when the old is worn out to get on the new, if the new is the thing where God is at work. Um, We shouldn't be afraid of that. This is really how we approached, how I approached international student ministry for many years. I always wanted to be on the leading edge of where God was at work among the students. And if Brandy were up here, we could talk about several instances of how we totally changed direction with something because it was obvious God was not at work in that thing and He was working in a new place. And to stick with this meant we would miss the thing that He was doing. We were always asking, where is God at work? Who's the new person that he's working on? What's the new thing God is doing? What's the new group, the ethnic group, that God is beginning to move among? Where are we seeing him moving? We always wanted to be ready to turn on a dime in order to best and most strategically be the touch of his love to the internationals. And if something was no longer helping us to attain our mission and vision, we didn't stick with it long. Because when you're stewarding God opportunities, you don't wanna waste time and energy, right? That was our approach. Um, several years ago there was, a, there was one particular group that was very responsive to the gospel maybe 10 years ago there started to become a shift to where there was less interest in that group and soon after we saw interest arising for the first time in people who were coming from the Middle East now we could have kept with this group and kept trying to, to work this old field that just wasn't nearly as responsive and we had to make the shift and it made a, it, you had to make, there was some shifts you had to make in the way we did things to to develop friendships with people from that region of the world. The way I talked at Bear Trap had to shift a little bit when more of people from the Middle East came. I had to approach the gospel a little differently to hit them. So, it's not always fun to change. It was never fun for us to change strategy in mid-course. It's never comfortable. But when we're walking on mission with God, it's necessary when it's something He's doing. So, back to the parable, last thing. Mark adds an interesting detail that none of the other Gospels have. If we fail to put new wine in new wineskins, what is the cost? What does he say is the cost? Both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. That's the cost. We dare not miss the new because we have a bias for the old. We dare not miss the new. So, there is a famous bell curve. For all my educators here who use bell curves or um, that indicates the breakdown percentage-wise how people relate to change and new things you can google it later if you want to read more about it what there's individuals on this what they call them I'm not I decided not to use those words but I want you to answer I want you to to, to reflect on this in, in just a minute before you do two quick things um, I don't want you to think about I want to ask you how are you a change and in a minute, you'll see how, you, how to answer. Um, I don't want you to think so much in context of church. I just want you to think in your own life, generally, how do you respond? What is your normal response when something in your life changes? That's what I want to know. That's how I want you to think. How do you respond in your normal life? And when you answer this, I don't want you to even answer it this way. Not, do I see value in change? Because I think we all see value in change. I see value in change, but sometimes I do not want to change, right? I can see the value in it, but there's no way you're taking me there. So I want you, when you answer this, to be thinking just in your life, how do you respond to change? And not do you value it intellectually, but I want to know really in your behavior, what do you do? And so here's the question, what is your dominant disposition towards change? And it's on here. And if you've got this and you've got a pen, I'd like you to draw a circle around one of these. If you're over here on the left, you'd say, in my personality, I'm not comfortable with change. I tend to prefer things as they are. I struggle to adapt. On the right side would be in my personality. I'm quite comfortable with change. I'm generally open to it. I'm very open. I easily adapt to it. I actually love change and new things. And then some of us are somewhere in between. But I just want you to think to yourself, like, where on here would you say you are personally with change and let me say it's not good or bad because God's given us all different personalities and we need some people who have stability to them right we need those people who like hold the reins back a little we need that we need people who want to run into change or run into new things We, we need both so it's not a good or bad it's just where are you So let me wrap up with this. Would we not all agree that the world around us has radically changed in the last five years, in the last ten, in the last generation? It, It is radically changing. And would you also not agree that many of the old models and methods that we use to reach the world aren't working anymore? Would you agree with that? It just doesn't get the fruit that it used to. We want to be like the sons of Issachar, whom in 1 Chronicles 12.32 says this, they were men who understood their times and they knew what to do in their times. We want to be those kind of people. And that is why it has to be more than us and it has to be more than here. It's got to be more than us and it's got to be more than here in this building. It's got to be more than us and it's got to be more than here. Because... God devises ways to bring us back, oops, sorry, when we have been separated from Him. And that means to Him doing new things. Even now, in our culture, in Emporia, Kansas, at 12th Avenue, God is right now devising new ways to reach lost people. And do you know why? Because, oh, the overwhelming, the never-ending reckless love of God. That's why. There is no shadow. He won't light up. I know this personally. There's no mountain. He won't climb up in coming after us, right? There's no wall that he won't kick down. There's no lie that He won't tear down in His desire to come after us. There's no shadow, again, that He won't light up. No mountain He won't climb up. No wall He won't kick down. No lie He won't tear down coming after us. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases us down. It fights till we're found. It leaves the 99 for the one. For the one. Can we end by standing and worshiping this God, this God of reckless love? So may we be that kind of community, right? May we be the kind of people that there is no shadow that we won't light up. There's no mountain we won't climb up, right? There's no wall we won't kick down. There's no light we won't tear down. Because we're on mission with God, seeking those who don't know Him. We want to be that kind of community. We want to be the kind of community that we have our eyes open and we perceive when God is doing a new thing. And we're quick to jump on with that and to do whatever it takes, whatever wineskin it takes to make that new thing happen, that we'll do it. We want to be that kind of community. Would you say amen to that? Yeah, I think we want to be that coming kind of community. So let's, let's go today to the world to a world that's lost, and let's live in light of this reality. So you are sent.